practicing righteousness is not the cause of the new birth. It's not the condition of the new birth. Instead, it is the evidence of the new birth. The new birth happens, and because the new birth has happened, we practice righteousness. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does it mean to live like a true Christian? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue the series titled The Christian's DNA. Many people in our world today believe that Christianity teaches that you're simply required to be the best person you can possibly be. In other words, that the heart of Christianity is that your good simply has to outweigh your bad at the end of your life in order to get into heaven. But such a belief misrepresents what Christianity actually teaches. As Tom will show, the Christian faith involves a radical transformation brought about by God, leading to a life characterized by righteous living and obedience to the Word of God. And that's a comfort, believer, because we as Christians have been born again and have new spiritual DNA, if you will. We will desire to live in a manner that honors our new Heavenly Father. Is that true of you, friend? Tom Pennington examines the matter carefully as he begins now, here on The Word Unleashed. First of all, true Christians will have confidence. True Christians will have confidence. Verse 28, abide in Him, be remaining, continue to believe, continue to follow Him, continue to obey Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence. Now, the Greek word confidence is a compound word that literally means all speech. It was used in Greek culture to refer to freedom of speech the right of a citizen to openly express his opinion and to do so publicly. Eventually, the word moved beyond that to speak of confidence, boldness, assurance, and that's the idea here. John says that the true believer has confidence. Now, it's interesting. He uses this word confidence in two different ways. First of all, he speaks of confidence in prayer. You can have free speech with God in prayer. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. 1 John 3 and verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever now we ask, we receive from Him. Not talking about the future, it's talking about right now. We have free speech with the God of the universe right now in prayer. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So right now we have this confidence. We can speak freely with our King, with our Emperor. But back in our text, verse 28 of chapter 2, it's talking about having confidence at His coming when He returns. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think he explains that a little more in chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us, 
so that we may have confidence, here it is, in the day of judgment. That's the point. Not just when He returns, but when He judges. We can have confidence at the judgment. By the way, there's a, there's a Greek wordplay here in this text. The word for confidence is parousia, and as you know, the word for coming is parousia. So true believers will have parousia at the parousia, confidence in His presence. The picture is, is a citizen who has confidence to stand before his king without fear. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if you're a true Christian, you will be able to appear before Christ confidently when he comes and at the judgment to speak respectfully, yes, but boldly and with assurance. It's like Charles Wesley's hymn, Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That boldness is not because of anything in us. It's because of what Christ has done, but we will be able to have free speech before the God of the universe. We will be able to speak with assurance, with confidence. If you're a true Christian, that's what it will be like. You know, I think we, we fear, right, what that will be like. If, if you're a true Christian, you will have confidence, not in yourself, but in Christ. But there's a second response in verse 28, and it's that false Christians will shrink away from Him in shame. False Christians will shrink away from Him in shame. Look again at verse 28. This is if you don't abide in Him. This is the opposite. For those who don't abide in Him, who don't keep believing, who don't keep following, who don't keep obeying, they will shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Shrink away in shame, by the way, is used only here in John's writings. And what's interesting about this word is it can mean one of two things. It can mean to have a sense of shame, or as we would say, to be ashamed. It can also mean to put to shame or to be disgraced. So John could mean here that at Christ's return and at the ensuing judgment, false Christians, those who claim Christ but aren't truly His, will shrink away themselves from Christ in shame because of His glory, because of the charade will have been discovered, their, their mask, their hypocrisy will be taken away, they'll be seen for who they are. That's possible. I think it's more likely, though, that the opposite is being said here, and that is that Christ will put false Christians to shame, and He will disgrace them publicly. I think that's clear in light of what Jesus Himself says will happen to false Christians at the judgment. You remember in Matthew 7, verse 21, He says, many will, will say to Me in that day, Lord, Lord, look at, look at us, we're followers of Yours. And verse 23 says, I will declare to them. Now, think about this. This is a public declaration of the Lord of the universe, I never knew you. Can you imagine living your entire life here on earth, claiming you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and at the judgment, Jesus Christ says, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. Now, if you're a true Christian, don't be frightened by that. He tells us exactly who he's going to say that to. In Matthew 7, 23, he says, I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Comes right back to our text. 
you who are practicing lawlessness. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. By the way, he's not talking about a momentary denial like Peter's denial. Obviously, Peter was a genuine believer. In context there in Mark 8, he's saying, if you refuse to accept my demands for discipleship, if you refuse to own me as Savior and Lord, if you're ashamed of me in that sense, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. In other words, at the judgment. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. One commentator, Marshall, puts it this way. He says, those who will be ashamed when he comes are the people who did not live in union with him on earth, those who were merely nominal in their allegiance to him, and their rejection at his coming will be the final confirmation of a life of spiritual separation from him. In other words, the only people who will be separated from him eternally are those who spend their lives separated from him here. If we've been born of God, Christ will certify it when he comes. He will render a final verdict on our spiritual condition, and he will declare that we are either still dead in our sins, like Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, or he will declare that we have experienced the new birth, that we have been born again, that we've been raised from the dead, like Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. He will certify that when he comes. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, well, you know, that's, that's great. I'm thrilled that that's going to happen, but is there a way to know now? Is there a way that we can know now whether or not we're born of God? And the, the good news is there is, because there's a second insight here about the new birth in our text, and that is that it is confirmed now by our actions. It is confirmed now by our actions. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous. Now, who does John mean he? He is righteous. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, he says the Father is righteous. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says Jesus is righteous. So who is he talking about here? Well, let me just admit to you that this is a little confusing. Let me walk you through it. Stay with me. Verse 28 is clearly about Jesus, about his coming, his appearing. The second half of verse 29 has to be about the Father when it says born of Him because Scripture never says we're born of Jesus. And to be born of someone implies what? A father. So there is a change from Jesus in verse 28 to the Father. And either that change happens in the middle of verse 29 or more likely it happens between verse 28 and 29. I think that's far more likely. So, in other words, verse 28 is about Jesus, verse 29 is about the Father. And you'll notice verse 1 of chapter 3 is also about the Father. So, in verse 29, John says, if you know that He, that is the Father, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him, that is the Father. If you, all believers, know as a fact that God is righteous, then you will understand the logical consequence that everyone who is practicing righteousness has been born of Him. Literally, the text says, everyone who is doing righteousness, everyone who has a habit and pattern of life 
is doing or practicing righteousness. So this is not an occasional good deed. This isn't, you're sitting here this morning going, you know, I, I think there were a couple of times this week I, I, did, I did something pretty good. This is not the typical American approach to, well, you know, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. This is not external morality at all. This is the true Christian's habitual practice. You say, well, what does it mean to practice righteousness? Let me give you the standard. Go back to chapter 2, verse 6. The one who says he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. There's the standard. What does it mean to practice righteousness? It means to live like Jesus lived. It means to be like Christ in your behavior, in how you are and how you act. The person who consistently walks as Jesus walked, the person who consistently loves God and loves others, the person who consistently is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, the person who lives in a consistent pattern of obedience to the Scripture. We're not talking about perfection. Chapter 1 made it clear that, that all Christians sin and confess those sins. We're talking about what is the pattern and practice of your life. Is it characterized by darkness and sin, or is it characterized by the light and obedience to Jesus Christ? If you, in fact, consistently live a pattern of righteousness, that person, you, are a genuine Christian who has experienced the new birth. And here's the reason every Christian practices righteousness. Verse 29, everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Everyone who is continually practicing a, a pattern of righteous living, thinking, speaking has been born. The, the tense of the verb is very important. The one who is practicing righteousness now has previously been born of God. You see the order? That's very important because it, it says that practicing righteousness is not the cause of the new birth, it's the result of the new birth. It's evidence of the new birth. Being born again comes first. The new birth comes first, and then out of that comes a life of practicing righteousness as an evidence of that new life. Now, so far in his letter, John has described believers as knowing God, being in Christ, and walking in the light. But this is the first time in his letter that he describes the believer as having been born of God. Here he says, born of Him. Now, this verb we'll see again and again in the rest of the letter. In fact, it occurs ten times in 1 John. Every other time, God is explicitly mentioned. So here, it means when it says born of Him, it means born of God. Believers stand in a completely new relationship to God. This describes a radical change produced in the believer at the moment of salvation that has massive continuing consequences in his or her life. You know, there are a lot of people who think Christianity is, you know, trying to be better, trying to turn over a new leaf, trying to live out the Sermon on the Mount, trying to be the best person I can, trying to make sure that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That is a total misunderstanding of the Christian faith. You are introduced into the Christian faith not by a, 
a slight mental decision you make, but by a radical transformation in who you are that Jesus says is like being born all over again. Theologians call it regeneration. Because a person has been born of God, and we're going to see this unfold in the rest of the letter, John teaches us that because a person has been born of God, he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who's come in the flesh. He does not continue to practice sin unabated. He practices instead righteousness, and he loves other Christians. That is a radical change, and it it begins with regeneration, with the new birth that happens at the moment of salvation, and only God can do it. God, I should say John, defines what it means to be born of God in two texts in his gospel. And this is such a huge issue that I'm going to take more time next week to look at it, Lord willing. This whole concept of regeneration is so important to understanding John that we're going to look at it in detail. I hope to look at those passages, but they are John 1, 12, and 13, and of course, our Lord's interchange with Nicodemus in John 3. But back to our text here, the reason the true Christian's actions are characterized by a pattern of righteousness is our DNA. Our Father is righteousness. And because He is righteous, righteousness now marks our character and our conduct. 1 Peter 1, 16 and 17, you shall be holy because what? I, your Father, am holy. A child displays the character of the parent because he shares the parent's nature. Again, let me just remind you, I mentioned this earlier, but the verbs in verse 29 make it clear that the righteousness we're talking about here, the practicing righteousness, is not the cause of the new birth. It's not the condition of the new birth. Instead, it is the evidence of the new birth. The new birth happens, and because the new birth has happened, we practice righteousness. As I mentioned I visited the Green Mount Cemetery in Baltimore last week, and in that cemetery I visited two graves, two graves that are less than 50 yards from each other. Both are graves of professing Christians. The first is the grave of J. Gresham Machen, a man whose life was characterized both publicly and privately by righteousness. The second was the unmarked grave of another professing Christian, the grave of John Wilkes Booth, the murderer of President Abraham Lincoln. Booth, you may not know this, was confirmed as an Episcopalian. He went to a couple of religious schools. He may have eventually converted to Catholicism, the faith of at least one of his co-conspirators, but he was buried in this plot by an Episcopalian bishop. And he thought of himself as religious. David S. Reynolds writes this, Booth's writings are full of firmly proclaimed devotion to God and to country. Booth looked back fondly on the American Revolution and wrote, How I have loved the old flag can never now be known. Reynolds goes on to say, Booth saw his violent deed as God-directed and scribbled in his pocket diary shortly before he was captured in a Virginia barn, quote, 
God simply made me the instrument of his punishment, end quote. Folks, there are two men who professed Jesus Christ at some level. One was characterized by a pattern of righteousness. His actions confirmed that he had been born of God now in this life. The, the other was characterized by a pattern of sin that culminated in the murder of the president. One will have confidence when Jesus appears. The other will be put to shame by Jesus Christ himself. But you don't have to be the assassin of a president to live a life that's inconsistent with your profession of Jesus Christ. We live in a world where that's very common. It was in the first century. The heretics that John confronted were antinomians. That is, they were those who either ignored or downplayed the importance of right living as an evidence of Christian faith. Today, the Christian world is filled with various approaches that downplay righteous living. Let me just be honest with you. The most popular one in our area is this. It says, if you ever in your life made a profession of faith, if you've ever prayed the sinner's prayer, then you're a Christian. Sealed, done. And it doesn't really matter how you've lived since you prayed that prayer or made that profession. You're forgiven. You have eternal life. Go ahead and live your life. John says, that's ridiculous. Like father, like son like father, like daughter. True Christians always have their father's DNA stamped on their persons, and they will be righteous and habitually practice righteousness as he does. So let me just take you back to where we began and and ask you to apply this and think about yourself. Here's John's argument. Every true Christian has been born of God. If you're, if you're a believer, you've experienced that radical act of regeneration. You've been changed. You're a new creation. And because of that, if you are changed, if you have experienced that, you also display the righteous character of your Father by consistently practicing righteousness. Let me put it this bluntly. Righteousness is the primary marker in every true Christian's spiritual DNA. Does your character and conduct resemble that of the Father you claim? If not, let me just be frank with you. This isn't me. This is Jesus through his apostle saying to you, he doesn't care about your prayer. He doesn't care how many times you prayed the sinner's prayer, how many times you walked an aisle. He doesn't care what's written in the front of your Bible. He doesn't care what your parents told you about some childhood conversion. If your life is not marked by the DNA of your Father, righteousness, then you are not His. And my plea with you today would be to truly turn to Him because He will receive you. He's gracious. If you will truly repent, if you will acknowledge that, if you'll throw yourself on His mercy, if you'll come like the publican in Jesus' story, the tax collector, and you'll say, you know, be merciful to me, the sinner. Change me. Make me a different person. Give me a new heart. He'll do that if you'll repent of your sin and put your faith in His Son, in His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His resurrection. And my plea is for you to do that even today. And here's the encouraging part for those of us who have. Everyone who perseveres in practicing righteousness. 
shows that they've been born of God, and here's the encouragement, brothers and sisters, we will have confidence at the judgment. We will have confidence when He comes. We can speak freely to our King because we bear our Father's DNA. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his series, The Christian's DNA. Tom will have part three for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church, where Tom serves as pastor, is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas Distance location. Join Pastor Tom as he hosts the Master Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, coming up March 23rd through the 26th, 2023, at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.